0: Now and we open them to Revelation chapter six. And this evening we are continuing our discussion of the discussion of the sixth chapter as we're looking into this revelation that God has given John about things that will come in the future. The outline, I remind you once again, is found in chapter one, where John is told to write things which he had seen. That was the vision of Uh, The glorified Christ, he was told to write things which are, and that pertains to things that are happening even right now, things that are happening in the church age. And then he's told to write things that will come hereafter. And chapter 6 is part of that vision of things that will come hereafter. So we're talking about future events right now, and for those who aren't saved in the present, they need to very carefully consider what will happen in the future. Uh, This is a time when God is going to pour out his wrath and his vengeance upon the world. And this is when Jesus will reclaim the world as his own. And he'll redeem us from the havoc that was caused by Satan in the fall of man. This sixth chapter that we're reading is the unrolling of the scroll that is the title deed to the earth. There are seals that are placed on this scroll, and each one of those seals has to be broken. And as each one is broken, uh, a new calamity is poured out upon the earth, part of God's vengeance. Now, what we talked about in the last sermon last week was the first part of this chapter. And we looked at the first four seals. Uh, These are commonly known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And each one of them brings an unprecedented destruction. Tonight, we want to look at the opening of the fifth seal. As John uh, sees the people of God cry out for vengeance against those on the earth that had so cruelly martyred them for their faith in Christ. This evening, we're going to begin reading at verse number 9 in chapter 6. So if you'll stand with me, please. We're going to talk about the opening of this fifth seal. Revelation chapter 6, verse number 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Heavenly Father. As we come to you tonight. We just ask you, you'd bless your word. Help us as we teach this, Lord, to be very much aware of these terrible calamities that will come upon the earth. May people take warning about this. Help us to learn something as we discuss the fifth seal that's opened. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't want to spend very much time with this, but I do briefly want to go over some things that we talked about last week as we looked at the opening of those first four seals. Each of the seals uh, has a rider on a horse that comes out and there's a rapid succession of calamities that happen upon the earth. So let's talk about those first four seals for just a moment as as a brief review. The first one was the white horse, and that represented political judgment. And what we find here is the introduction of the world to the Antichrist. This is Satan's puppet who will be a, a worldwide leader. He comes, comes with the promises of, of a better future. He comes with economic success. He comes offering peace to the world as one who can settle all conflicts and even one who has an unprecedented talent to bring peace between Jews and Arabs. That's never been before accomplished. And that is really going to ooh and awe and wow the world at all the things that the Antichrist is able to do. So this man comes and he takes over the governments of the entire world and he comes with such hope and promise that he's able to uh, come to power in a bloodless coup. But it doesn't stay that way for very long. And that's because it never has been Satan's intention that men should live in peace. And so true to form, Satan, who's always been the enemy of God's people and the enemy of man, he has no intentions of changing his ways. So that worldwide peace that's brought in turns out to be a sham. The economic prosperity is short-lived. And then this man becomes a tyrant over the entire earth and over everyone who opposes him. Well, that brings in next the rider on the second horse. This is the red horse, and that represents military judgment. This rider comes in to take peace from the earth, and the Antichrist seeks to consolidate his power so there are no rivals that are tolerated. So even if anyone tries to rise up against him, then the Antichrist is able to take the peace from the earth. He enters into war, and no one is able to break the stranglehold of the antichrist power. Then the third horse that comes out is the black horse. That represents economic judgment. The cost of war and the cost of the antichrist social programs will be too much to bear. And so then there will come an economic collapse. The world goes from feast to famine at that time in a very short time. And so common man, common people upon the earth are going to uh, go into starvation. They won't be able to feed their families And the power and the wealth that's going to be concentrated into the hands of a very few. So death and starvation will be rampant upon the earth during this seal. Then that brings the opening of the fourth seal. And out comes the rider on the pale horse. And this is welfare judgment. This is judgment upon the health and well-being of people. So the fourth rider introduces death. He comes in riding on a horse that is a sickening pale green color of death. There are millions of people that have been dying from starvation and the unleashing of wild beasts upon the earth and the rotting corpses of all those people that die are rife with disease and that begins to contribute to the death of many, many more. Under this fourth seal, we read that 25% more of the earth's population dies And that's in addition to those who have died already under those first three seals that were open. And uh, if if that figure uh, were to be compared to the population of the world today, if one-fourth of the world's population died today, that means that over one and a half billion people would die. And these people die of disease. Well, then comes the opening of another seal. So what we want to talk about tonight, this is the fifth seal, and the scene shifts from what's taking place on the earth to a scene that's taking place in heaven. This fifth seal is about the martyrs. This is religious judgment. This is the fight over religion. I'm not talking about that God is going to pour out a judgment upon his people, but this is a judgment, it's a, it's a cry of vengeance from God's people upon those who are on the earth who have taken their lives because they stood for the truth of the gospel. This is what we find in verse number 9. It says, When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are primarily people that were killed during the tribulation period because of their faith in Christ. But I think that it also probably includes all of those people who were believers from the Old Testament period and all of those that were in the New Testament times in the era of the church. Those who died under persecution, these are also uh, figured in this number. Now, Now remember that we have seven years of tribulation and before that time Jesus comes back to the earth. He doesn't set foot on the earth, but he comes in the clouds of glory and he comes to rapture all living believers. But just prior to that, in a flash, he comes and he raises up all the dead bodies of all those saints, those ones we're talking about in the Old Testament, all those who have died in the church age. These are raised from their graves and then they come up and they go into heaven with these living saints. And so that means that during the tribulation time, there will be no church. The church ceases upon the earth, but it doesn't mean that nobody's going to be saved because in the tribulation period there will in fact be millions of people saved. God raises up 144,000 witnesses. We'll talk about them when we get to the seventh chapter, but he raises up those witnesses and they're just amazing in their ability to win people to Christ. Also, we'll come to the 11th chapter and we find that God raises two special witnesses there and they have amazing powers. Then in the 14th chapter, God brings up another different way of preaching the gospel and this is when an angel flies in the heavens and he proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. He cries out for people to surrender to him, to believe in him, to turn from their wicked ways and to worship the true God. And so the combination of all those witnesses means that there will be perhaps even millions of people that will be saved during the tribulation period. Now, as I've stated to you many times before, I do not believe that that includes anyone who has already heard the gospel prior to Christ's coming. And so there's not going to be anyone who can say, well, I'm not going to trust Christ now. I'm just going to wait until all these things start to unfold. I'll see it happening. Then when that happens, then I'll trust Christ. They won't. They won't have the opportunity to do it. The Holy Spirit will not convict their hearts at that time to believe. And I think the Bible even teaches us that God will shut up their minds to the gospel so they, in fact, refuse to believe, although they see all these different things that are happening. And I think that's the teaching that we find in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 12. But millions will be saved, those who haven't previously heard the gospel, and they will believe because of all these special witnesses that God raises up. Now, at the opening of the fifth seal, not all of those people have been saved. Now, I'll show you this in just a moment. This seal is opened up somewhere around the midpoint of the tribulation period. So this is three and a half years or so into it, which means that there's yet three and a half years to go. Now, let's look at some things here concerning this fifth seal. First of all, the Bible gives us the reasons for their death. Why are they killed? John says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony of their faith. Before I get to those reasons, I want you to look very closely at that that first part. It says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain. What does he mean by the altar? What is this altar that he's talking about? I want to take you back now to our study in the tabernacle. Uh, This was uh, just a little bit over three years ago. Those of you that were with us then when we went through all the different things in the tabernacle, I told you that it was a very important study because it would open up many other areas of the Word of God to our better understanding. And so if you don't have that background of the tabernacle, you'll see things like this. You'll see altars here and things that are in heaven, and you really won't understand what that's all about. In the Old Testament, God gave Moses the plan for the tabernacle, and of course that was to be the place of Israel's worship after they left Egypt and there were many different parts to that worship. There was that tent-like structure that God gave them and and uh, the the tent itself and the way that it was made said many different things about Christ. There were the furnishings that went into the tabernacle. There were all the vessels of worship that were used and there were many uh, different types of sacrifices that they were make that they were to make. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that all of those things that were in the tabernacle, that they were made after the pattern of holy things that are in uh, the holy sanctuary of God in heaven. Now, Moses was told to make all of those things because they're models of things that are in heaven. One of the things that Moses was told to make was a brazen altar. Now, in the short term, that brazen altar represented the cross of Christ place where he would go to be a sacrifice for our sins. But it was also a pattern of, a, of an altar that's in heaven. In Leviticus chapter 4, it says, And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord. And that's a separate altar. and We'll talk about that one a little bit later on in our study. But he's to put blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So here we see these souls that have been martyred, and they're at the bottom of this altar. And that's a symbol that Christ's blood is poured out upon them. And it's by his blood that they're washed clean. And it's the blood of Christ that enables them uh, to come into the presence of God. So what then are the reasons for their deaths? Well, number one, it's because of the truth that they preached. It says they were slain for the word of God. Now the tribulation time will be a particular time of difficulty for anyone who confesses faith in Christ. Throughout the history of the church there have been many different times of persecution. It started all the way back there when the church first got its beginning. The Jews in Jerusalem persecuted the people of God. And then as uh, persecution caused Christians to spread out into other parts of the world and, uh, of course, into the Roman Empire. Then the Romans, the Gentiles, they got in on the persecution. And so you have emperors like Nero and, and Diocletian that were particularly notorious in their persecution of God's people. Then in the 4th century, Constantine wed what was called Christianity to the, to the state wedded to the Roman Empire, and that's when the Roman Catholic Church was born. And at that time, those who claimed to be Christians actually became some of the worst persecutors of the people of God that the world has ever seen. Many of you have probably heard of the Spanish Inquisition. It lasted for about 300 years from about uh, the middle of the 15th century to the early 19th century. And there were thousands of people that were tortured to death in unspeakable ways. And that's because they wouldn't bow down to the popes of Rome. Now, that's just one of the periods of persecution at the hands of Roman Catholicism. And even today, if you travel to some of the third world nations where Roman Catholicism has control, there are still remnants of persecution there. So all of that was horrible. All the things that these people went through, but none of it was like it's going to be during the tribulation. This will be a particularly difficult time. Millions of people, as I said, will be saved, and millions of people will be put to death. The 144,000 witnesses that God raises up, they will be sought after to be killed, but those particular ones, God is going to protect them. But why then are so many people put to death? Well, the Bible says here it's because of the truth. It's because of their testimony of the truth. Now, preachers of the gospel are going to be sorely persecuted at that time, uh, uh, those who stand against the Antichrist and who expose him for all that he is won't be tolerated. Today we have a lot of preachers who feign that they would stand up to the death and preach the gospel of Christ until they die. But the very same ones are, are people that are afraid right now to stick to the pure gospel that we've been given. I mean, there are preachers today who won't preach about sin. They won't preach about hell. They know it's not popular, and that's not going to bring people in. It's not going to bring money in. And if you don't bring the money in, you can't fill your pockets up with the people's money. And so they stop preaching about that altogether. Now, do you think for a minute that those kind of preachers would stand in a time of persecution? They won't do it. They won't stand up. But these, in the tribulation period, they're great people of faith, great men of faith, great women of faith. They stand up, and they proclaim Christ right to the death. They refuse to take the mark of the beast, and so their blood will be shed. Then the second reason for their death is because of the testimony that they lived. Now, I'm plowing some old ground here, but we really ought to be very much aware of this, and we need to hear this. And that is what you, when you live for Christ, your light exposes the underbelly of sin. People don't want to be with you when you're acting and living like a Christian. And that's because the comparison of your life to theirs just shows how really rotten that they are. Righteous living is always convicting to people who hate God. Now they know, lost people know this, if people begin to turn to Christ, if if hearts get right, then opportunities for vice and corruption, that will begin to be severely limited. If businessmen and, uh, and women... Were, were Christian people and, and they were people who lived their faith, if we had elected officials who were born again and lived their faith, if we had teachers and administrators in our school that were born again and lived their faith, then it wouldn't be long before the filth and corruption of this world would begin to be stamped out or at least driven underground. Now Satan knows that, the lost know that, and for sure the Antichrist is going to know that. And so anyone who professes Christ, who lives a testimony, is going to be put to death. It's a threat to powers of evil when Christians begin to live like Christians ought to live. And if you wonder why we have so much trouble in our country today, why do we have open homosexuality, and why do we have the politics of choice and abortion, and why do we have pornography that's the biggest industry on the internet? It's all because Christian people won't stand up, and many Christians are even involved in such things. So there's no testimony of the faith today. Families don't live the faith. Preaching is weak in the pulpits. Churches are weak. Very few people want to live for Christ. And those same ones are never going to die for Christ. If a person won't live for Christ, he's not going to die for him. But such is the time of tribulation... Here are these martyred souls. They're under the altar and they're there because they preached the gospel and because of the testimony that they lived. Now, secondly, let's talk about the retribution they desire. Verse 10 says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? I love things that are written in the Old Testament that help our understanding. In our study of Nehemiah, we found a, a, a very unusual prayer in the sixth chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was uh, in the process of completing the walls around Jerusalem, and there was a lot of opposition to him as he did. There were people who rose up, and they began to badmouth Nehemiah, and their purpose was that they would destroy the people's confidence in him. So Nehemiah went to the Lord in prayer and he prayed a prayer that was not for his enemy's salvation. He prayed that God would judge his enemies. He prayed that God would punish that evil. Now that's, if you remember, what we call an imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer for judgment. And I told you then that you shouldn't try to pray those kinds of prayers. And the reason you shouldn't is because whatever judgment that you try to put out on people, you be sure that you're going to be judged by the very same, by the very same standard. And so I don't advise you to pray imprecatory prayers, at least not if you're as a godly person as Nehemiah was, and just like these people were reading about in Revelation. But they're praying an imprecatory prayer. And this is a just prayer. Now, we think, well, that couldn't possibly be a just prayer. Here, he's praying for judgment. He's not praying for their salvation. But that is exactly what these people are in heaven, these souls under the altar. They're not praying for the salvation of their enemies. They're praying for Vengeance. They're praying for destruction. Well, why is that a proper prayer? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, because it's an act of God's holiness. Holiness is an inherent attribute of God. Now, there are different aspects of God's holiness. We can talk about God's perfection, about his transcendence, about God's right to be worshipped and adored. But there's another particular attribute that God has that applies here, and that is God's purity. God cannot tolerate sin because sin is corruption. Sin is the corruptions, corruption of God's creation, and so God has to judge that. Now, some people have the idea that God just loves, and God is merciful, and God, because of that, will overlook sin. And so they think that in the end, everything's going to turn out right because love will substitute for justice, they can't imagine a God who, who would ever send anybody to hell. And so they think it's really not a big deal the way that they live. Everything's going to be all right. Well, the problem is that's just what they think. I mean, they've structured a God who is what they think. There's only one revelation that we have from God, and we have it right here in the Bible right here in this book, right here in the Word of God. We read it all the way through that Scripture shows us that everything is not going to be fine in the end for those who haven't received Christ as Savior. Now, this is a right prayer because it's a prayer about the character of God, God as He's revealed in His Word. And God always acts according to His divine attributes. If He were to excuse one sin... Even one sin, without respect to holiness and justice, he could not be God. Now secondly, this is a right prayer because it's an act of God's truthfulness. If God doesn't judge sin, he's not truthful because that is exactly what God says that he will do. When God says that there is an everlasting place of, of punishment, of torment, that has to be true. There has to be a burning fire of hell. And if there is one, then God has to use that. Now, maybe people don't realize it, maybe they don't think about it, but if there is no hell, if there is no burning place of torment, and God says there is a hell, then whenever God speaks about heaven and he says there's a place of eternal bliss, there may not be a heaven either. God's going to be truthful. There must be both of these places because he says that they exist. So God's truthfulness is at stake. And when God says that he will avenge the enemies of his people, he must do that. That's part of the promise that he made. And that's a promise as much as any other promise he made. So sure are God's promises that Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And do you know the context when Jesus made that statement? He was talking to the Jews about their rejection of him. And he told them that because they had rejected him, they would lose their temple, they would lose their city. And he said, this is so sure that earth will be gone, heaven itself will pass away if these things don't come true. So this is a righteous prayer. These people will be martyred. It's a, it's a cry for vengeance because they trust God's long ago promise that the wicked will be judged. They believe God's going to do it. They believe the Antichrist will be deposed. They believe that Satan himself will join all of their enemies right there in the lake of fire of eternal torment. Now lastly, about the fifth seal, is the reassurance in the delay. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled." So the martyrs cry out, how long is it going to take? When are you going to avenge us, Lord? And they're anxious for Jesus to bring in the full power of his kingdom right then. But there's a delay here. Again, this is three and a half years into the tribulation. There's still time to go. God has more to do before he entirely reclaims the earth of his own. And so God never said, well, it's not coming. And God never says, it's harder than I expected it to be. God didn't say, well, I'm not sure if I can actually do it. No, God has a reason for his delay. So he assures them in this delay. Number one, that a time of vengeance will come. Now, what he wants them to do, he says, rest a little bit longer. Now, we might think that because God didn't answer this prayer, at least not at that particular moment, that they must have sinned. They didn't pray a perfect prayer. Here, here, this must be a prayer that's out of the will of God. Now, that causes a problem. Here you have people that are in heaven. How could they possibly sin by praying an imperfect prayer? Well, it's not sin because this is God's people coming into the perfect understanding of him. Now, you see, when we get to heaven, there are going to be a lot of mysteries that will become very clear to us. At that time, we'll, we'll start to understand some of the things that God, or many of the things that God did. Well, we just simply don't understand why God works the way that he works those things will start to become clear to us. But we won't immediately understand everything there is to know about God. The angels that are in heaven uh, have been with God from creation, and they still don't understand everything about God. We have that scripture in First Peter where it tells us there that the angels are still puzzled about this whole thing of the redemption of man, why Jesus would come to this earth and lower himself as he did to become a man and go to the death of the cross. They don't completely understand it. They realize it, they accept it, but they don't completely understand it. Well, just like those angels, we're not going to completely understand everything that God does. And and if we could be in heaven, well, if there was time in heaven, which there won't be, but if we could be in heaven for a million years, we'll still be learning about God. There's still so much. He's such an immense God, we can't know everything there is to know about him. So all of eternity, we're going to spend learning about him. So God's revealing more to the martyrs. There's a delay, but the time will come. And then there's a delay for this specific reason, and that is the number of martyrs must be completed. He says that there are fellow servants that are yet to die. Again, three and a half years we're into the tribulation here. It's horrific, but the worst for the world is yet to come. The second half of the tribulation is even worse. The Bible describes it, that last three and a half years, as being great tribulation. So the people on the earth are going to suffer greater, and uh, there's more things that are coming under the six and the seven seals. So when all of these things start to happen, then the anger of the Antichrist will be kindled even more and more. So what he does, he steps up persecution. There are more martyrs that are going to die for the cause of Christ. But then when all of those martyrs are brought in, When the very last one receives Christ by faith, then the total of God's elect will be completed. The time of grace, of God's grace, is over at that point. So the final gathering of all of God's elect is reached when that number is reached, and there will not be a single other soul saved. Now, God knows exactly what that number is. He knows the final tally, because God is the one who purposed it to be so. Now, not only that, it's not just like God put a number on it. And he said, well, here's the number that's and There's a counter up there in heaven. And he's just waiting for somebody to get saved. So the counter keep going up. And then when it reaches the right number, everything stops. Now, God, if you have a God like that, you don't have the right kind of God. God knows the names of every single person who is in that number. So if you have a God who doesn't know people's names then you have an ignorant God. God knows everyone that's associated with it because he planned that number and he planned the people from the foundation of the world. The scripture says that he wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. And so he calls every one of them individually by name. And this is so specific. The Holy Spirit is so particular in this that when he he comes to a person's heart with the gospel of Christ, he opens up that heart. The Holy Spirit convicts them And those people come to faith in Christ. Now let me take you back to uh, the seven churches in Asia for just a minute. There was one church there, Sardis, that was particularly an evil church. And we find something interesting about that church in the third chapter, verse number four. Jesus said, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You ever think about why he says names? Why doesn't he say something generic? I mean, why doesn't he say people? He says, there's some names there. Now, the reason he says names is because they are particular people. He's already listed them. Their names have been on his list for a long, 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 long time. He knows exactly who they are. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he said, Notwithstanding, and this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. Names are important to Christ. They're important to him because God has decided to call out a people for his name, to redeem a people for his name. And those names are written down from the foundation of the world. So there's a delay here. And the delay comes because there are more yet to receive Christ. And so God holds everything up until the very last one on his list comes to receive Christ as Savior. Now, Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, there are lots of preachers who preach that text, but they take it out of its context. You no, know, I've always said, You will not arrive at the truth of God's word unless you preach it in its context. What's the context of this? I don't have time to read it tonight, but I want you to. Tonight, when you go home, read Second Peter and find out the context. And you'll find out that Peter is talking about the very same things that we're talking about tonight. Second Peter is about the second coming of Christ. This particular phase of it, when all of these people are going to be called out, they're going to be redeemed, those who are believers in him. And God is holding up everything until his number is fulfilled. So God's not willing that any of these names should perish, and so he withholds that final judgment until he brings them all to saving faith. Now, friends, that is the God we preach. We preach a God who is consistent all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation and everything that's in between is all a consistent unfolding of God's eternal plans and purposes. Now, let me finish then with this last statement as We talk about the fifth seal, the fifth seal redemption scroll. The last statement is, believe before the day of grace is over. Now, in God's eternal purposes, he hasn't seen fit to tell us who his elect are. He hasn't decreed that any of them will be saved without believing the truth of the gospel. And God has ordained all of his people by name and the means by which all of those people will be saved. There's not one single person upon the face of this earth that could ascertain that he is the elect of God unless he believes the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's as simple as this. It's as simple as me saying tonight that if you will believe, you will be saved. And the fact that you're saved and that you believe, believe is proof that you are one of the elect of God. Don't try to get the cart before the horse. Don't try to find out who's the elect and who's not the elect. You simply tell people, believe on Jesus Christ. Anybody who believes can be saved, and that tells us that they were in the elect of God. Now, the thing for us to do right now is to trust Jesus. We don't know who these are. There's only one thing that's uncertain in everything that we talk about tonight, and that is we do not know when Christ is coming back. And we do not know when these seals are going to be opened. Everything else I've talked about is as sure you can, it's all sure, but we know these things. They're going to happen because God said they will happen. The only thing's uncertain is we don't know when. Now, when you trust Christ, the Bible teaches that the righteousness of Christ is given to you, and then you'll be able to be in heaven for all of eternity. This is what those white robes in verse 11 represent. It represents the pure righteousness of Christ. He clothes us in his righteousness. And the only way that you receive his righteousness, the Bible says, is by faith. The Bible says the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all who believe. So what every person must do is trust God. Jesus Christ before the day of grace is over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we read here. And Lord, for those of us, I I do pray that everyone here in the building tonight is saved. And for those of us who are saved, we're thrilled that we can read this and understand that we won't have to experience any of it. Here we are in the church age, and by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior right now, we have the guarantee that we will never see any of this or be a part of this tribulation period. So, Lord, I just pray you might speak to hearts tonight. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, the day of grace is coming to an end. We don't know when, but it's coming. And so every person needs to trust Christ right now and know that they're saved. Bless in this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.